This episode of the AD History Podcast is brought to you by you, our amazing patron. Thank you for supporting the show and helping us create the AD history you deserve. We could not do it without you. Have you ever wondered where the infamous and enigmatic European Huns actually came from? How they got to Europe? Or how they lived? Or how the unexpected demise of Constantine's direct family legacy came about? Well, do we have a story for you? This is the AD History Podcast, weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now, here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. And brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo, and I'm joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. Yes. As always, the big, the, the big cheeser smile. And, you know, Patrick, we got to start off the show by saying there was kind of an unexpected extended hiatus. So... Basically, every year, the way you and I work in our cycle, mm. we get we take three weeks instead of the two for over the holidays. Mm. That you, didn't happen here. No. So we had our lovely sort of holiday break. It was all planned in. We had thought, oh, we'll, we'll take that time off, then come back into recording. Unfortunately, things didn't go to plan. And like we've experienced over the last two years or so, things often don't go to plan in this wild world we're currently living in. Uh, Paul, do you want to share some light on what exactly went on? Yeah, so <laughs> interestingly enough, in the middle of January, this is, this is really fun, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll preface this by saying, by my own choice, naturally, I, I, I am fully vaccinated, but that didn't stop things. No. Yours truly got COVID-19. Oh. And it was literally uh, almost exactly a 14 day experience. Yeah. So and we, it was, and, it, and it weird, it's weird because it like kind of like waxed and wanes. But when it got into that second week, it really hit. And, and was, you and I actually tried to record an episode. <laughs> yeah. We actually thought, oh, well, you message saying I'm not feeling too great, but we'll, we'll give it a good go anyway. Um, and I'm used to, we, we've recorded when we've both been feeling under the weather before, but we're normally pretty good to go. We can normally sort of do it. But when I, when we started talking, you just sounded like death. Like, my gosh. <laughs> I was quite shocked Harbinger to hear you like that. of death. Maybe it could be a fun uh, patron exclusive thing we will put out on the patron at some point in the future. <laughs> if they want to pay for it, <laughs> sure, why the hell a not? A fun little bonus. But no, you are terribly unwell. <laughs> Monetize my, my illness. Yeah. Hey, it's 20... 21st century. Exactly. But no, you were super unwell Paul and I'm so glad to hear you feeling a lot better now and it's great oh, to have the you. podcast finally back we were gone a bit longer than we both anticipated apologies uh, say only apologies for that delay it wasn't intentional we don't like we, we're, we're quite I, well I myself Paul you're we're quite good creatures of schedule so when things go like that it's a pain but hope you will understand that unfortunately things just slipped out of our control but we're back now AD history is back exciting stuff it, 100%. And so for those that have been, you know, paying attention, we have our regular listeners, regular watchers over on YouTube, the whole thing. Mm. But in the last two weeks, obviously, we dropped the Gladiator review episode, which, of course, was a lot of fun. Mm. Yeah, really. Very bizarre, but good fun. <laughs> yes. 
And at at time of recording, this past Saturday, we released our first audio mini documentary. We we released a video version of that on YouTube um, that's a little different than the one that we dropped on the directories. So they're two different experiences, and they both have their own unique qualities to them. We encourage you to go and enjoy either or both. If you're listening to us, you can find it right here because it's most certainly immediately preceding this episode in our catalog. Mm. Or if you're not familiar with where we are on YouTube, go over to youtube.com slash 80 history podcast and you can see the video version of there. Like I said, they're both a little different, but they're both really, really good. And uh, but the substance is the same, effectively. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I've watched it. I've listened to it. I thoroughly enjoyed both versions. They're both very different experiences. And literally, go check them both out. Go, go listen and watch them at the same time. It'll be a wild experience. Don't know how much information you'll get through, but just, just, just give it a go. See what happens. (laughs) It'll be something else to be sure. But yes, Paul. And but, but of course, we get to today. Yes, the adventure continues. We are marching through. So we're in the three fifties, I believe, by now. It's been a while, but but we're carrying on our tapestry of world history. We are at that. And what are you sharing with us today? I am going to be talking about what happened to the final son of Constantine. So we talked about Constantine's three sons in a in the previous episode, and how they kind of just boosted up everything their father had laid out and it's just the final aftermath the last dregs of what became of that final son constantius the second um it's really fun stuff like of our previous episodes almost shakespearean this sort of fool uh and paul but you've got a really interesting uh segment for us today you are finally covering some people who can be very big players in ad history's future somebody that we can't ignore and nor would we want to, and nor would you listening or watching us want to. No, this is something that is going to change the face of Europe in a dramatic way. Because in not too long from now, and this is where we're setting the stage, we are finally going to open up our exploration and discussion on the European Huns, one of the ultimate historical enigmas. And I think that's going to be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to that. In addition to the fact, for our middle segment today, Mm. because this is our first episode that we're truly recording after the first of the year here in 2022, we're going to answer the question we answer every year in the first episode of that year, which is, how will historians remember the previous year? So in this case, 2021. And I think that's going to be a very interesting segment for you and I. It always is. Yeah, it's going to be a really exciting segment. 2021, while it was somewhat similar to 2020, it had its own differences, had its own unique things happening. And I'm really looking forward to talking about it and then hearing what you guys have to say about it too. True that, my friend. True that. And with all of that said, and all of it out of the way... It is time to lay down our necessary, obligatory, now legendary AD History Podcast Ground Rules. 1. Evaluate events in the context they occurred. 2. Over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. 3. Nothing in history was inevitable. And 4. 
history and the past is like a different country. So, Paul, let's not waste any more time. I want to hear all about the Huns, and I'm sure our listeners do too. Indeed. And so I'm actually going to pose this with a question to start off to you, Patrick. Mm. And that is, when you hear or think of the word Hun, what comes to mind? Kind of like blood-hungry warriors who sort of came out of nowhere and just decimated Rome and just kind of, kind of brought us into the Middle Ages. That's why I really see them. It seems weird to talk about the Huns and Romans being at the same time because they kind of seem like they're from two different worlds, but really at that cross-section of history at the moment, kind of the end of antiquity and the start of the Middle Ages, and the Huns are very much the bridge between that time. That's kind of what comes With, to mind for me. The Huns are, are so critical. Their existence just so impactful in their entrance into Eastern Europe, which of course makes them a point of supreme fascination to you and I. And so in life, we have many pressing questions that cross our minds. Why are we here? Is our universe the only universe? Why is Kaliningrad still a thing? That, that is such a very, very, very good question, Paul. Why is Kaliningrad still a thing? Well, we can answer that another time because <laughs> that's actually really interesting. And, of course, what is the origin of the Huns? Because it's one of those burning questions that we seek to answer. And for Rome, we're now entering a period where the sword of Damocles is truly hanging over the head of the Roman Empire as we've come to know it so far in our show, specifically the Western Roman Empire. Because now we sit on the precipice of the long and debated Huns of entering stage East. Indeed, the upcoming 370s is when the Huns are said to have poured into Eastern and Central Europe from the Eurasian steppes. And this is particularly important because so many of those lands that they came in and conquered created a mass demographic shift. Specifically, the Germanic peoples that were living beyond the Rhine and the Danube are now going into Gaul. Hmm. And it's putting a great deal of pressure onto Rome. We'll get to that in another episode. But it is important to note. It will begin this crisis that really is existential and fatal for the Roman Empire. It's not the only reason by any means, but it's one of the nails, one of the last nails on the coffin, to be sure. And we're still a few ways even from the birth of the famous uh, Attila. Hmm. You know, he doesn't come around until the early 5th century. But today we seek to explore the historical enigma of exactly who the Huns were, where they came from, and how they lived. And with that, I think it is best to set the scene. There is a famous tale of the Huns' origin that's most certainly apocryphal, but it's still telling, and it goes as such. Living in what is today the Kuban in southern Russia, specifically in the north and western Caucasus, were the Huns. Just across the Kerch Strait, which is the narrow body of water that connects the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov, was the Germanic Goths living in Crimea. And Crimea always seems to be relevant. Yeah. Both then and today. Yeah. And it is said that they had no knowledge of each other, 
living in complete ignorance of the other's existence for a very long time. Moreover, the Germanic Goths thought there was no land that existed east of them, and the Huns had no knowledge of land existing west of them. And this is something just real important to know. This is particularly and patently ridiculous. The Kirk Strait at its narrowest point is under two miles, and at its widest point is around nine miles. You can see the <laughs> other side with no special help. The sea levels haven't changed that much since. And if anything, the sea levels would have been lower, from what I understand, making a shorter distance between the two. But that's not as a fun story, is it, though, Paul? Like, Hell no. No, that's not as a, yeah, like, no one wants to come and say, well, actually, no, like, that's the, they said that's a fabled sort of story about their origins and where they came from. But it's a fun story to tell. But as we find out often in history, if a story's fun, it, it tends not to be true. Although, of course, there are many fun stories in history. True statement. But one day, either a cattle of the Huns, there are two versions of the story, hmm. or a Hunnic warrior was chasing prey and strayed into the marshy area of the Straits, where it was discovered that there was a land beyond to the west, a beautiful land which Crimea most certainly is. And people think, oh, well, you know, it's in Eastern Europe. It was long time belonged to Russia. Then for a time it belonged to Ukraine. Then Russia annexed in 2014. Mm. You think of Russia and you have a very specific thought in your mind of what exactly Russia is in terms of weather. Mm, yeah, yeah. Throw that all out the window with Crimea. Crimea is basically Russian or Ukrainian Florida. <laughs> I, okay, it's beautiful. It is paradise. Yeah, our image of Russia's uh, atmosphere, atmosphere, Russia's climate, climate, that's the word. Russia's climate is snow and cold and bitter. But Russia's so unfathomably huge, like... Russia probably has one sixth of the Earth's surface. Exactly. Like, I think every climate under the sun is probably somewhere in Russia or in Russian lands. So, yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that um, Crimea is it's Florida. But there is something interesting to note. And there's been a recent anniversary as we do the recording of the show right now of the Allied Yalta Conference in 1945. And of course, Yalta is in the Crimea, mm. but at the time it was totally destroyed from years of combat, the invasion of the Germans, then liberating it mm. from the Germans. And so when Churchill arrived, he quipped that they had come to the Riviera of Hades. <laughs> Classic Winston Churchill right there. He always has some biting piece yeah. to say. And I think what's interesting with Crimea, and this is something I think we've talked about in the past, is it. I've said in the past, I think like history shapes our world, but geography shaped history. And Crimea, yeah, they're two sides of the same yeah, coin. Yeah, and drug, like Crimea's geography, its peninsula standing, is so pivotal. Pivotal. You kind of understand why that kind of enclave of land has been so disputed over history. And it's just, I said, its geography. I think it shapes yeah. so much of the history that's gone Absolutely. on there. Absolutely, and this is very true with Crimea because Crimea has had strategic importance for just yeah. forever yeah strategic import importance. and you look at the map and you'll begin figuring out why yeah. especially today with sevastopol sevastopol yeah. of course was conquered for the russians in the name of catherine great by potemkin back in the 18th century but but that's another story <laughs> yeah. for another time so i guess our, our next question is paul so where did the huns actually come from then this is one of the most controversial and heavily and heatedly debated questions in history, and there mm -hmm. are plenty of those to go around. And there are a whole bunch of ideas, but luckily, as we have advanced scientifically, we're beginning to get more clues as to exactly where they might have come from and better understand them. But we're going to get into more of that. But 
So where do they actually come from? So there's a number of potential origins here today. For those we call the European Huns, and they reach well into the first couple of centuries BC, predating our show. Mm. Not really a surprise. They're, they were quite an ancient people. And one of the most prevalent is that they are distantly related to a group called the Xiongnu. The Xiongnu were a confederation of largely pastoral nomadic tribes that inhabited parts of eastern Siberia, Mongolia, and what we know today as Xinjiang in northwest China. Basically territories that were reasonably proximal and east of the Altai Mountain range in the frozen steppes. And when I say steppes, steppes is just a, a description of the territory, just long, flat lands. Hmm. You, you get the idea. So there are mountains, but then there are a bunch of flat lands. You know, the eastern steppe in European Europe usually is demarcated starting at right around Hungary. So mm. a lot of, fl you know, flat, mo sometimes very fertile, land, especially if you're looking at Ukraine. Mm. But beginning in the second century BC, the relationship with China is really the most notable insofar as we know. And mm. so far as they had numerous military conflicts with our old friend, the Han Dynasty. Hey. And the Han Dynasty began exacting tribute to them over a relatively extended period of time. And all that kind of geopolitical intrigue you might expect for the time to be sure existed between them. However, at some point, I believe in the early first century, that confederation actually schismed to north mm. and south. The northern Xiongnu began to migrate to, and sometimes slightly beyond, the aforementioned Altai Mountains. The folks that are proposed in this theory, which dates back to, I believe, the 18th century from a Jesuit historian, is the theory that eventually became our European hunts. So that, that's what, I guess, relatively modern historians think of them at least at 18th century. But do we have any like contemporary sources about the Zhongnu? Like, did the Han dynasty write anything about these people who we believe became the Huns? Do we have any sort of contemporary facts it's on Certainly contemporaneous. People? Contemporaneous, that's the word I'm looking for. Yes, there are some Chinese records from the time. And you also get accounts from all sorts of varied people. I know Buddhist monks usually took down quite a bit about them. But the interesting thing is, and this is also, once again, very controversial, and there are no certainties in this. Okay, guys, that's something that we have to propose here. Mm. We're just working on the best information that's available to us. And when they translated the name Zhongnu, it usually came out as either Hun or Hunna. Isn't that interesting? Names. It's all in names, Paul. It's all in it's, names. It certainly, most definitely, and so often is just that. So, but also, as well as names, what about like genetics? Have we done sort of genetic history? Or maybe people who are believed to be descendants of the Huns? Like, does that sort of help us understand more about their origins? So I actually watched a really interesting interview with a genetic researcher by the name of uh, Rajiv Khan, who actually has been studying this quite a bit. He actually has a really great substack if you're interested. You got, might have to pay a few bucks, mm. but you know what? You're, it's going to a good cause. He's a really interesting, really smart guy. And this was basically his feelings on the subject, and I found them pretty measured and and very much open to possibility because... Even he recognizes, even with genetic research, there's still no you know, definitive answers here. But first off, the good news is that because Siberia and the far northern far east are both really cold and many times very dry, DNI has been preserved pretty well yeah. on the whole, Cheer. my interesting friends. Cheers, Weber. 
Yes, wherever you may be listening or watching us today. And so from what I understand, the genetics research that has been performed is from remains of Hunnic people in Europe from roughly around the 5th century AD. So this is even after Attila's time and after the infighting between his son's successors ultimately, you know, destroyed the Confederation. But their people still existed. They still kept ways with Mm -hmm. them. But according to that research, it is apparently shown that they have significant genetic connections to people that are believed, and as far as I know, are really rather well established to having lived in eastern Siberia at the time of the Xiongnu. Now, is this the smoking gun? No, but it's a very good piece of evidence. So you can't dismiss the Xiongnu theory on this. No. Well, you know, whether they're actually directly related to the Xiongnu or a people that in some way had you know, a lot of contact and influence by the Xiongnu is entirely possible. But the fact that that genetic research has pointed in that direction with a, a great deal of gravity says a great deal. And I think it's probably worth noting, we often take it for granted just how much the Romans kept record of their own history and like track of these sorts of things. Like it's when we do stuff like this that like we realize this was such a long time ago. Like Rome have written their facts, they've been translated and updated so they can be sort of understood today. But people weren't, not not the entire world wasn't on par with that. You realize that we're talking about such ancient history that sometimes we don't know the correct answers that's exciting in its own way sometimes there's excitement in the mystery of it all and that seems to be sort of the case here is allow people to theorize things every bit of what we consider to be credible and mostly via you know verifiable evidence specifically through the method in which it is obtained adds another potential piece to the jigsaw puzzle Exactly. But something else I'm wondering, Paul, is like, so we all have a kind of like a broad stroke image of the Huns as these sort of like warrior, mm. warrior sort of nomadic tribesmen. But do we know more about who the European Huns were culturally once they arrived in Europe? Like what were their customs were, or like how they lived? Were they, on a civilization standpoint, for lack of a better term, were they similar to Rome? Like did they have, did, did they have the same sort of civilization Rome had or other uh, civilization at the time did? So that that's interesting. So actually, mm. this is an even harder question to ascertain than, mm. than the genetic and origin one, to be sure. And there's a reason for this. And the biggest reason for this is, the, from what I understand, if they kept written records, only very little of it has ever been uncovered. Mm. And so for the most part, there's a lot of thinking that the Huns, especially, and it's not to say that all pastoral nomadic people didn't have a written language or didn't take down Mm. their own history. But in the case of the Huns, and and as far as we understand them, uh, they were an oral society, which means that everything that they they know about themselves and their culture and the story of their own origin as they understand it is lost to us. And I think it's, it's kind of a double whammy with the Huns, it seems like. Not only were they nomadic, they were also an oral uh, society. And those are just two elements that are going to leave so little trace to the historians. Often say or name explain. Language can't be, can't be preserved like a dinosaur bone. And this is just a clear example of that. Like, unfortunately, the spoken word, it doesn't fossilize the spoken word. It doesn't 
it does, you can't unearth it from the ground. It, and this seems just to be the case with the Huns here. If only they, if only they had written more and made some buildings. Assuming they were writing. Of course, yeah. Even assuming, assuming they, were they yeah, assume they could that they were writing at all, yeah. But this also creates another, you know, reality. But it's also a problem, and in and in that case, it's that because they're not, because we don't have a way to know their story from their own perspective and what how they saw the world and what was important to them in a number of ways. It means that the history that is being recorded is mostly by those who opposed them and those that they conquered. Which probably explains to us why we have this image of them being vicious warriors, because the only people writing about them were those who got defeated by them. Yes, and this is one of those exceptions to the idea that the victor writes the history. Mm. Not the case here. Not the case here. Because at the end of the day, those that they conquered, and, and of course what they ultimately meant to Rome... They're not, they may be the victors, but they basically have no say in their own history and their own mm. role in this as they saw it themselves. But like I said, they're basically an oral society as we understand it. And that's kind of difficult. But it is important to note that the term Hun potentially, keyword potentially, may be less an ethnic distinction by this point in history and could possibly be more of a political distinction. Mm. And there's a few reasons for this. Well, first off, we'll get more into how they lived in a bit. But the reason this is interesting is because Attila, when he solidified his empire to call it anything, they used the symbols and name of the previous Zhongnu. So it would most certainly seem that they did in their own minds and carrying it through over centuries because that basically they started moving west again sometime in the late 1st, early 2nd century. So they're here, you know, we're, we are in the late 4th century. This is almost three centuries, maybe a little, like two and a half, where they're slowly migrating further west. And, and so it, the fact that that seems to be preserved over time is really fascinating. And that whole idea that the term Han was more a... a um political sort of distinction that kind of just reminds you this is a fun fact fun interesting it reminds me a bit of the incas so the name of inca it actually only applied the incas only used themselves as the higher up officials only the higher members of that society were known as incas but when a european uh, settlers arrived in south america they just called all of them incas yep and you know that's that's human on human history. Yeah, you know? it just reminded me a bit of that, really. But it's something I found interesting. Absolutely. And on top of that, they re- I'm sure Attila probably thought, if this was indeed the case, that it had, it had carried gravitas. Yeah. But when I say it's also a political distinction, as this, as this group begins to go and, and go further and further west, mm. every time they come across a new people that they presumably absor- you know, conquer and absorb, mm. You're getting more ethnicities and more byproducts of those people that they absorb as they go west. Yeah. Including, but not limited to, some of the folks that they encountered when they got to the European part of the steppe. One of them is the Alans, for example, or even the various Germanic tribes that were there prior to their arrival. And so it, it's very likely that they, they're multi-ethnic, at least in the way we understand it today, mm. and it's possible that they could have spoken a number of languages. 
Interesting. And like in regards to their sort of culture and languages, were they religious at all? Did they have any kind of worship or like did they seek divination in any degree? All of this is an extrapolation mm. because we don't know for sure. But there are some scholars who believe that the European Huns were animus. So worship mm. of particular animals. You know, this is mm. something that we see to certain degrees. Like, for example, even though you would not consider Hinduism an animist culture, obviously the cow is incredibly sacred. Yeah. So this sort of thing certainly does still exist to this day. In addition to other things you might potentially expect, like, for example, worshipping the wind or fire, you know, the, the natural elements, which is interesting in and of itself. And kind of everything that went with that, one of the issues, though is that the Roman historian from this period of time, might add, so he's, he, you know, he's writing about this rather contemporaneously on his own. His name is Marcellinus. He's one of the main Roman sources for this kind of information. And uh, apparently that he wrote that the Huns had no religion. And that is, would be pretty odd in and of itself. But you mm. also have to remember that in the case of Marcellinus, it's not like he had the highest opinion of the Huns, when you, especially when you start talking about how he describes them. Yeah. And what's so interesting, this is so different to anything we've come across really so far in AD history. That so far, our main areas of study and observation have been Rome and China, and they are both incredibly religious parts of the world. Like the Romans were so superstitious. Like if a bird, if there were so many birds in one area, that would be a bad omen. And of course, China had their mandate from heaven. So for sure all of all of a sudden, these people who, while it's highly unlikely they they had no religion, that that that's probably wasn't the case. To not have as much emphasis on religion, especially in the way China and Rome understood religion with gods and whatnot, that would have seemed so alien. Like I said, we really are approaching a different time in history at the moment, sort of seeing it slowly unfold, and it's just fascinating. It really is. So you know, take Marcellinus's account for what it's yeah. worth. He's looking at it as a Roman because he was a Roman. And Huns weren't really in the Huns weren't really in Rome's good books, I imagine. You know what? It's it's interesting. This is an interesting point, mm. actually. When they arrived, you know, they they made room for themselves, and we'll get more into that later. Mm. But it's important to note that even though we think of the Huns and we directly relate them mm. to the fall of the Western Roman Empire, which is not incorrect, they were not they did not always have an adversarial relationship. They had diplomatic relations. There are accounts of that. Mm. In addition to the fact that they also traded with each other a good deal. Gosh. Yeah, you, you immediately presume uh, they're just like um, enemies. You kind of always know these sort of various empires are enemies, but no, that makes sort of sense. They would have provided for themselves, like helped each other. And of course, other. when they, they weren't trading for what they wanted, you know, sometimes they just raid and steal it. Yeah. But, but ultimately, they did have what we would call something of a normal coexistence on certain levels. Mm. They were not just these monsters out of the European steppe that are just totally uncivilized and that it couldn't be dealt with and they, they saw the end of the Western Empire. No, that didn't happen at all. I've just There was definitely relationship. There was some pragmatism to this in their coexistence, especially when we're talking about before Attila, to be sure. I've just realized who's to blame for our view of the Huns pool. It's Disney and Mulan, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, in fact, actually, I, I believe in Mulan, 
the enemy forces were the Zhongnu. Yeah, I, I've only seen I've only seen the cartoon once. It wasn't really one I had of childhood. That's, that, that's the good one. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've I've watched half of the live action one. They gave up, but yeah, like that kind of image of just bloodthirsty warriors who want to battle. That's that's Disney's fault, isn't it? <laughs> like well, you know, all, all 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 of these tales from <laughs> yeah. from your are highly melodramatic by design. So they're working with the source material to some it, degree, it, it, with the exception of the of the. Really lovely musical pieces. Yes, some lovely music in that film. So when and when they weren't trading with Rome, could they provide for themselves? Like, did you always get the impression with nomadic people that like it, it's such an alien concept to us that even to, in ancient Rome we have very much structured society. It seems it, it's kind of hard to imagine how that would work in a nomadic situation. So could they provide for themselves as well? Well. They clearly could provide yeah. for themselves. Or they, or they would have, we would never have met them here. But the question is how. And so we mentioned them being kind of pastoral nomadic. Mm. I think most people get a pretty clear idea of what that means. But I've come across a number of sources, which is interesting, that apparently have found some evidence, especially when they're kind of in the area between what we know as, as central uh, modern Ukraine and Crimea. And then, of course, even northern, northern going up more towards the Moscow area, that they were nomadic in terms that, that, that they would they would move as the seasons change because, mm. you know, basically food for your animals and cattle. But apparently there are there is some evidence that did suggest that they did much beyond one's expectation for pastoral nomadic people, given the fact that they're in the long run almost always on the move, mm. that they did, in fact, engage in some agriculture. I think it kind of reminds me once again when I think nomadic, I think obviously, of course, you've got to think Native American. And when we covered the Hopewell tradition um, way back, where I think in the beginning of the second century, yeah, you get this idea that nomadic means constantly moving, always on the go. But that really isn't the case. Nomadic can simply mean like a, a lot of nomadic tr nomadic peoples will set up settlements for months at a time. They like said just move yeah. for the seasons. Yeah, it's really not. It's not that constant go, 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 as many of us might think when we hear nomadic. It's very true. And, you know, so for the most part, this is kind of the ABCs on what we can say with some certainty and what some of the best sources say at this point about the Huns themselves. And, you know, going back to the point we were having earlier, the fact that they have no ability to weigh in on this discussion mm. and research because we don't have their stories from their perspective, really robs us of something really amazing that mm. may never be available to us. But there's no question that even though they, we don't know much about them and their time as the true European Huns in the Confederation that came you know, barreling across the steppe and created this grand demographic shift that really was an existential fatal wound, one of many, uh, to Rome in the 5th century coming up. They are just a people that are almost always be a mystery mm. to us in, in, in all likelihood. But there is something interesting, and I think this is worth closing on here because it's a really fascinating point. Mm. About 2500 B.C., the people that would eventually become the Xiongnu and various inhabitants of the uh, Eastern Eurasian and Eastern North Asian steppe, 
are actually believed to have emigrated from Europe and started going eastward at the time. We don't know why they chose to do it. And then a couple of millennia later, the, the descendants of those same people that migrated from west to east began migrating from east to west. And once again, th this is uh, I have to give credit where credit is due. The genetic researcher, Razi Khan, actually made this point where he says it's not so much about the arrival of the Huns, but the, the ancestral return of those people who left Europe originally, you know, 2500 B.C., which mm. is fascinating stuff just right out. Yeah, really super interesting. We often get the question, Paul, if you had a time machine, where would you go? And this, oh, yeah. this, this has to be up there because we know, like you say Rome, but we know an awful lot about Rome, especially with our historian hats on. Like we want to understand how history works, how people did things in the past. We have a pretty good understanding of Rome. It would be so fascinating to actually fill in these blanks of history. And that's just kind of what's coming to mind here with this. But I really look forward to seeing what happens with the Huns because they, like I said, I, I know just such broad strokes of their history and who they were and how they lived. So I'm really looking forward to learning more about them through this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you, whenever I get that question, mm. especially you and I were students of history. We, we are historical presenters. That's part of our profession and through this podcast, naturally. Mm. And so anytime I get that question, I always have to put a qualifier. Which period of time would I want to visit? <laughs> I have to say that visit, yes. But in some hypothetical way, no ability to interact. Only observe. Yeah, more like see it on a TV screen or something. Yeah, not because I'm worried about screwing with the, the arc of history and putting one plate of grass in the wrong place and then, you know, Nazi Germany wins the Second World War. <laughs> you know, just these ridiculous uh, temporal yeah. hypothetical questions. But for me, at least, I'm always very careful, which is to say... I, I, I could tell you where I'd want to go, but under the understanding that I would have no ability to interact and no ability to be noticed. Yeah, I think that's kind of the boat I'm in, especially if you go into this sort of period of history. I just want to see. I don't want to be a part of it. That's for sure. Yeah, I, I totally understand. So this is fun. We're definitely going to talk a lot more about the Huns because yeah. they're going to be huge. And there's a lot more detail to get into. Like I said, this was really an ABC's introduction to mm. these people. And we're going to get into a lot more about specifics of their origin, what they were doing in Europe, their impact, all of these things in not too long from now. And that's really, really exciting. So stay tuned. Looking forward to that, to be sure. But with that in mind, us here, you there. We'll be back right afterward from Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at ADHistoryPC and the hashtag ADHistory. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube by searching ADHistory Podcast, as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash ADHistoryPodcast. Also, check out the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See how you can help support the show and the rewards that await you by exploring the AD History podcast on Patreon. See the link in the description. Now, back to Paul and Patrick. So, Paul, 2022 is officially upon us. And it's normally around the start of the year that 
people, including ourselves, like to look back on the year just past. And we did this for the entire decade gone past when in, in early 2020. We did it about just 2020 and 2021. And we're doing it about 2021 in 2022. Paul, what do you think 2021 will be best remembered for? By historians specifically. By historians, of course, specifically, yes. So I very intentionally did not prepare for this question in advance because I wanted yeah, to likewise. get an organic feel of it. Mm. And the first thing I'm going to say is I, I don't know that I'm alone in this, but it certainly makes sense, which is I feel like 2020 and 2021 are almost the same year in certain respects. I feel like they bled into each other just intensely. Yeah. However, there were some really big historical events in oh, yeah. 2021. There's like, no question, but I'm just yeah. talking about how, how I'm perceiving it up in oh, my yeah, monkey yeah. brain. Oh, good. Yeah. I can't believe there's been like two COVID summers. Like, I keep on thinking, oh, last summer. No, that, that was like that memory's 2020 summer. It's, it's bizarre. It, it really is. And so naturally, how you answer this question is going to have everything to do with where you live. So mm -hmm. how we think historians will remember 2021 is, of course, going to reflect the experience that we have in the part of the world that we live. Some of the stuff that we'll be mentioning ha has its own political baggage that comes with it. We're not here to discuss that. But we do look at these things in a dispassionate way in terms of what historians later on down the road, especially if you go a generation, what mm. are they going to be looking at, right? And for my mm. country, you know, not going to get into the baggage of it, but of course, I think one of the big and undeniably important things that did happen, however you may feel about it, was what happened on January 6th at the Capitol, naturally. Yeah. My country has been known to handle unrest throughout its entire history. And I was not the first person to say this. This was from the, really just the revered writer and historian David McCullough, which is that at every point in history, everybody who's experiencing it in that moment thinks it's the hardest and biggest challenge that they've ever faced. So there's always kind of their, they have their own bias to the moment, which makes sense because we're human beings. You know, we're always going to favor mm. where we are and what's happening in the now for the most part. This is another time for us. But that, that's certainly like kicking it off right off the bat that's huge, of course. Hmm. everything that's going on with the pandemic. And I'm sure there's a, a generation down the road, there's going to be a multi-volume history, yeah. maybe, or a really good single-volume history of this particular pandemic from a variety of perspectives. And I think they're going to be very interested to see how our understanding of what we're fighting and our attitudes towards it hmm. have changed over time. And once again, that comes with a lot of baggage in this discussion, which we're not getting into. However, there's no doubt that historians will be very keen to know more when more information that we have absolutely no ability to know now for a variety of reasons eventually mm. comes forth. What's one of yours? I think a lot of what you said, Paul, covers it. Here in the UK, COVID's been a very big factor. There's stuff that happened in 2021 that is starting to come to light here in uh, 2022, as I'm sure a lot of, I don't know how, how much it's being spread around the world. The illegal parties, the people who run this country were having, that's kind at of At number been, 10, like those garden parties? Oh, it's been more than garden parties, Paul. They've been but inside. But at number 10, right? Yeah, at number 10, yeah. It's just, it, it's been quite shocking. 
to see why we were all following these rules, there was a lot of fear. Like, oh my gosh, is it okay for me to be next to you, even outside? We'll, to, to find out the people running this country were having parties during When they were lockdowns. telling you to stay indoors and stay away yeah, from each other. It, it's just it's just shocking. And it it's all coming to light. The moment. There's this big report and now the police have got involved. It's just... It's just... It's a mess. It is a mess, but... What I'm going to mention next, it seems, it's that, but it's also ridiculous as well to some extent, and that that's how people have been talking about because there's, of course, I think the biggest historical event has been Afghanistan. Surely, has it not for 2021? That's very true. But before we get into the whole mm. Afghan thing, just okay, as yeah, a sorry. point of clarification, mm -hmm. those who might not be familiar because they're not from Great Britain or may not be familiar with its political system. Number 10 is a shorthand term for Number 10 Downing Street, where the serving yes. Prime Minister lives and works. Apologies, I presume everyone knows that. Yeah, and the number 10 Downing Street, it's the UK's White House, for lack of a better explanation. It's, yes. where the, it's the heart of the government. But amazingly, it's, it's all, you know, the entrance is right down there at street level. It's, it's a white mm. hall, correct? Yes, yeah. Okay, I'm just, just making sure that I, I have oh, my... No, you, you know your stuff. My, my, okay, thank you. But you were mentioning the exit from Afghanistan. Yeah, that, 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 that's even a still ongoing thing. That was a complete regime, regime change, like... Afghanistan's changed its name. It's not fully it's still called Afghanistan. It's the Emirate, like the Emirate of, yeah. of Afghanistan, I think, something like that. And it's even their flag, that it. sort of thing. It's a whole, like, kind of just watching that happen on the news was shocking. And heartbreaking. And heartbreaking, yeah. I mean, it was, it was basically our 21st century exit from Saigon. Yeah, it it felt like something from the history books. Just like to hear a city has fallen, like and that's the not, capital, no less, right? Yeah, like that's not a term you expect to hear in twenty twenty one, but it happened, and, and it happened no, quickly. Absolutely, you know, and of course, mm -hmm. my country and your country, and it was well because you know we're very close allies on a political, mm -hmm. international relations basis, and variety of allies that we've worked with and whatnot. We were there for 20 years. Yeah. For future historians, they're going to be looking at that in great detail. And with the benefit of time, hopefully having a more dispassionate view of mm. exactly what that experience was like for our countries there, as well as the Afghani people and everything that went around it, as well as the, you know, the great geopolitical consequences of mm. uh, both being there for as long as we were and also choosing to exit in the way that we did. And something that's really interesting, because you look at it from an American perspective, this is something I, I strongly believe in. Every action that's taken by a, a current or very recent administration cannot be fully weighed in terms of its impact for at least 20 years. Mm. I mean, we know what the impact has, at, was at the time. Yeah, that, that's not in question. We, we can see what was in front of us. But what are going to be the unintended consequences? What are going to be the spawns of this decision in the long run? What is it going to mean for the people that live in Afghanistan? What is it going to mean for its neighbors in the region, or for that matter, the world? Mm. And there's going to be a lot of examination into the whys and wherefores of how we exited and, and how we conducted ourselves and what our strategy was there for as long as it mm. was. But that's really an excellent point on your part. Really just gold standard stuff. Top of the class, Patrick. Well, I do try. Thank you. But yeah, but no, I'm for it. 
I mean, that's all what's coming to mind. I mean, there was some more hopefulness as 2021 rolled on. It, it was nice, like the world, at least various parts of the world, my part of the world, your part of the world, I imagine, did return to degrees of normality. It was great seeing, I'm sure Paul as a sports fan, it was great seeing stadiums start to get filled up again with people, concerts starting to go ahead, plans being made, parties could happen again. I went to a few weddings last year. It was great to do that sort oh, of stuff man, all over again. 2021 yeah. was the year of the wedding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was the year of the wedding. That's a great way to put it. Because so and, many people had to reschedule, in including, you know, of... Former AD history fame, my own brother's wedding exactly. had to be rescheduled for all of this as well, and he had and he, it this year. And he got to celebrate. No, and it was, it's easy to bemoan weddings because the organization goes in, going to them at times, but in the moment, Ooh. they're such wonderful things. So it was great to be able to do stuff like that again, really. I can tell you this just on an off note here. <laughs> yeah. Should you ever get married and whatever service you do, whatever your romantic situation <laughs> may be, I can give you one piece of advice about any wedding ceremony or reception for it. <laughs> Go into it thinking about it being the party that only you and your significant other can throw. Mm -hmm. That's the bullseye. Yeah. At, at least it was Something for me. And, okay. and luckily, I have a, a wonderful wife and wonder, amazing in-laws that made this all really possible. <laughs> so one of, the best, one of the best memories of my life. Yeah. So... There's a lot of a lot of stuff that's going on here. You know, right now something that began showing its hand, of course, rather the invisible hand of inflation, certainly mm -hmm. on my side of the pond to be sure, which is something that I think was expected. Yeah. For a lot of different reasons, we don't have to go into the details of monetary policy on this. No. Most people that are listening, especially if they're in the West or in the United States specifically, know exactly what that experience is like cuz we're still experiencing it. Yeah, likewise here, there's this cost of living crisis that's being dubbed here in the UK going on yeah. at the moment. There's yeah, same here. Every, everything's going up in price. It's kind of scary. It's, as someone who makes their living based on how many views videos get, it's kind of scary seeing all these prices go up. Energy prices have gone up. Food prices are going to go up. Um, time will tell how this pans out for us all. That mm. and 2021, I believe, was... Wasn't it the first year that Britain was truly detached from the European Union. Yep, that happened too. Just <laughs> forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it so... was all anybody could talk about. And then now it's just like, oh, mm -hmm. oh, you're, you're just worn out over it. Yeah, yeah. Just worn out, upset about it personally. If you're happy about it, congrats for you. Um, and of course, something else, Prince Philip died. <laughs> a, a big event in... Um, British history. You know, that was a huge event in British history, the passing of Prince Philip. Philip was a complicated character. Yeah. You know, yeah, I, that's, a, that's a way to put it. <laughs> he's a complicated character. And, you know, if you've watched Netflix's The Queen, you know, there, there's a very the interesting, oh, excuse me, yeah, Netflix's yeah. The Crown, excuse me. You, you get a very certain view of the royal family, to be sure. Mm. But I, I think the interesting thing for me, based on what I read about him in terms of his role very late in his life. Mm. You know, he, he, he was really kind of a, um, he had like a certain very British boys club bravado, old boys club yeah. bravado about him. Yeah. It was, it was very much reminiscent of his time when he came up. You know, this is, this is not yeah. a shock. You know, people are a product of the era from which they live. But what I find so interesting, Patrick, now in his absence 
is that the, one of the major roles he played later in his life was really kind of handing, handling the personal family affairs. Yeah, that was a huge part of his sort of thing. He was kind of the family man. He was, kind of the father, he was the father of the royal family, I guess, quite literally and figuratively. Like, and especially his role with the Queen, he always knew that he was second banana. He was always going to be in her shadow. And that's a role he took with pride, many historians like to say. He was very happy. His job was to support her. Yeah, you know, and, that, and he did that exceptionally well. He did, and you know, Elizabeth is beyond reproach in so many ways because, mm. from a monarchy perspective, in terms of a modern monarchy perspective, she's been mm. writing the book on that since she was yeah. coronated in the early, you know, in the early, early fifties after uh, George the Sixth, her father died. Mm. But something I find interesting: this came up in the news a couple of days ago, um, you know, relative to the time of recording that the Queen actually came out and stated that uh, Camilla Parker Bowles, the, the second wife of Prince Charles, that it was her greatest wish that she would be known as Queen Consort. Yes, yes, that's a pretty new re revelation. That's actually just happened or so. And this is her, is this her platinum jubilee? Yep, seven, literally, so it was 70 years ago yesterday, George V, George V, George V, VI, VI. VI, my bad, George VI, George VI passed away, so she kind of became queen then, but the actual coronation celebration no, no, no. wasn't yeah. until Oh, yeah, 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 no, yeah. Yeah. The yeah they, they put a lot pageantry. of time there. Yeah, there's like an official mourning period. That's what we went through last year. Like, every official everything morning. was at half-mast. There's an official mourning period. It's very, very odd and surreal. Though, just speaking of odd, surreal things that happened in 2021, to change the subject a little bit, Hmm. Do you remember the Suez Canal fiasco? <laughs> that oh, happened goodness. too. Yes, yes. Ever indeed. given, ever, ever given, yeah, whatever the, ever the book given. was called. Yeah, that was so, a bizarre story once again. It's one of those sort of like just, just mad moments. I think something like on the high end, something like twenty percent of world commerce passes through the Suez hmm. Canal. It's, it's a, it's a obviously an artificially constructed body of water hmm. that's meant to connect the Indian Ocean to the Red Sea and then to the Eastern Mediterranean. And mm. its economic influence and importance is huge. You know, there was a reason why Britain and France wanted to get it back when Nasser decided to up and nationalize it, which is uh, really interesting. Of course, we know how that worked out and it's still in Egyptian hands, but that was a huge deal. That was a it huge was a deal. huge deal. It was kind of like just sort of bizarre... It was interesting. It was like crazy. Of course, it affected people massively, but it's kind of like quite inoffensive as well. Like it was just like this weird thing that was happening. And most people are not even thinking about the Suez Canal. Yeah. Because you know, we basically have the three really important, no, four, I would say, really important passageways economically mm. in terms of world commerce. Because as we've talked about in the show, even going back into antiquity, the best and most effective and economical way to if it were, if it's possible to trade and the logistics mm. of it is by sea because you can pack a whole lot of cargo and it may not be the fastest route but it's very consistent mm. and it brings it where you want to go and so today obviously we have the Suez we have the Straits of Gibraltar we have Panama and the Straits of Malacca in Singapore and mm. anytime those areas are for some reason obstructed, it, you know, God forbid, mm. there is always a domino impact. Yeah, and it's just it's just aware of like 
you kind of don't think about where the stuff in your house comes from, food or just products. Like you kind of just, they're on shop shelves or they arrive in the post. That's it. You don't think about the actual manpower and like energy and just bulk of how it tastes. And like that blockage in the Suez Canal, it was kind of just like, it kind of made the world realize like what we had done, this sort of interconnected world we'd made, the consumerism. It's kind of like this big, ugly face of it in some ways. It, it's it's a reality of the logistics of how commerce works in a yeah in a really global society. The other yeah. thing that I think is really worth mentioning when we're talking about economics, which is a huge part of 2021, and maybe you've experienced it. Mm. It certainly started in 2021, still going on. Are mm. shortages? So it definitely began in 2020, has carried on into 2021. It seems to be here now. So supermarkets have like obviously the, where the fruit and vegetables are, like they're like just put out in Produce. boxes. Yeah, like they have like these fake cardboard pictures of produce they now put in the empty ones because empty boxes have become so commonplace now. It's almost it's, traumatizing just, in a way. It is. It's. I, I don't know if it's a Brexit thing. It probably is a Brexit thing. It, it's not but a it's, unique thing. We're experiencing it yeah, here too. It's become so like shortages. Like it feels bizarre. Like how am I? How is it 2022, 2021, and just like food shortages is going on in like incredibly developed countries like mine and yours paul it's just bizarre yeah that and on a technological side there's obviously been a computer ship shortage yeah which is which is affecting that market and and technology profoundly at the moment mm. i'm still yeah, that, waiting for my ps5 no i'm not i haven't got one <laughs> i'm not waiting for one but, but yeah, my, the, my brother figured out a way at one point but <laughs> that's that's another story but the point of the matter is that has had a very demonst you know demonstrative impact Mm. on how we live. I mean, luckily, you and I have most of what we already need in yeah. this respect, and we've been very fortunate. There's no other way to put it. It's a very strange thing because you and I have grown up, and many people listening, wherever you mm. may be listening or watching, have experiences too where you've never had to think about the possibility that something you want might not be available to you. Mm. Just like an ordinary thing that we want just might not be available, yeah. So I mean, right now, I think everybody's really just kind of making the best of it and 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 working with the hand they've been dealt, which is yeah. all you can do, right? But yeah. It, it's it's certainly going to be one of the the key historical narratives and threads for any future historian that begins examining, uh, on a whole, the events of twenty twenty one. In addition to that, of course, you know, if we're talking from the perspective of my country, starting throughout 2021 though it's not unique to 2021 the essentially the large global rivalry between the united states and china continues to ramp up mm. you know china has obviously continually made threats about invading taiwan which is not something that most countries and certainly not mine want to see because mm. if you're familiar with taiwan it is it, it is an absolute jewel and yeah, one, I, I, one of the yeah. yeah one of the freest and open societies and political and governmental systems that exist today they rank mm. very high on the freedom house score even more than our countries which is interesting mm. so you know that's going on and of course bleeding into 2022 but it started in late 2021 of course is when vladimir putin began starting exerting pressure on ukraine and, and by extension the west and, and nato in particular yeah which is is really strange because no, it's not strange at all. You know, if if you are, if you're if you into know, the yeah. subject, you can you can see what's happening there, 
and that's particularly interesting. You know, Putin is not so much ideological in nature. You know, he's not the Soviet Union by any means. He's not Stalin. Mm. Very few people go in that category, for <laughs> sure. It's it's not that rep it's not repressive on the totalitarian scale. It's authoritarian, no doubt, but and everything that's coming with that. And I think that's something that is going to be really an important thread because late in 2021, that's that's when it sparked. And at the time of recording, there's still no conclusion to what's going on there. I mean, we can get into the what's and wherefores of what exactly the nature of the issue is, at least as it stands, which a lot of it has to do, of course, with the expansion of NATO and mm. Russia seeing certain countries, especially ones that are contiguous to their borders, and that being what they consider to be their unique and Russian sphere of political influence. Mm. And there's a very complicated relationship between Russia and Ukraine, because Ukraine, for the longest time, of course, was either A, in the Soviet Union, a Soviet Socialist Republic, or B, in the Russian Empire. And now, of course, after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, like many former Soviet republics, they declared independence and are now independent. Some of them have much closer relations with Russia. Uh, Belarus would be a very good example of that. Kazakhstan obviously called in Russian military help with the uprising that occurred early this year or late last year. But Ukraine is entirely a different issue. And that one's yeah. still going to be playing out. It's history in the making, Paul. We're watching it in the making. Do you have any other ones for us? Because there's so many, but there's only so there's, many we can cover here, right? Yeah, there's only so many we can cover here. We've already talked for about 20, 15 minutes or so about, uh, well, we've, this middle section is supposed to be a bit briefer. So I think it's only fair, Paul, we ask the listeners what they think 2021 will be remembered for. Oh, absolutely. Especially if you are watching us on YouTube or if you're on the podcast directories, you know, at us on Twitter, at ADHistoryPC, mm. or if you're interested in seeing us do the show in studio, of course, you can always go over to youtube.com slash ADHistoryPodcast. And usually, of course, this is our middle segment to answer a Patreon submitted question, which we promise we'll be doing again in the next episode. We have some good stuff for that. And our patrons are amazing. Like, for example, that video we did about the Allied perspective of why and how they choose to use the atomic bomb. Could they have used them mm. differently? Did they have to use them? That's also part and parcel to the joining Odo's ADFI army. And if mm. you want to help support the AD History Podcast, help us continue to grow and, and support our efforts, support the show, most definitely go over to patreon.com slash AD History Podcast. It helps immensely. We very much appreciate it. And it guarantees that our show can march on and us doing new and bigger things and Keep giving you the 80 history you deserve, because that's really where it's at. So mm -hmm. definitely go over and take a look. We have many, many wonderful benefits for those who choose to do on the minimum $3 tier level. Of course, you're going to get our episodes 48 hours early. That's both for the video version and the audio only version, if that's the thing. If you're interested in donating $5 a month, you have the ability to submit a question that we will answer in this segment, anything that has to do with the show, anything we have covered, anything coming up, history in general, Patrick and myself and our professional lives, that's all in play. And of course, there's more that can come from there. But go over and take a look at patreon.com slash 80 history podcast. Once again, that's patreon.com slash 80 history podcast. 
and join Odo's Adiophyte army. But with that, us here, you there, and we'll be back right afterward from one. AD! This is the AD History Podcast. And thank you, AD. Now, you're going into what I would say is finishing the thread of a very important figure, which of course is Constantine the Great, and specifically in this case, the very bizarre and uh, rather ruthless bunch that were his progeny, the three sons that he had with his second wife. And in this case, we're at the point where we have the last survivor, which of course is Constantius II. And you are going to give us this very important thread that we have followed so much up to this point and see exactly what came of the final survivor of Constantine the Great's family. And with that, Mr. Foot, Sir Patrick, you have the floor. Thank you, Paul. So, yeah, you're quite right there. And as we did mention in our last the last episode, by uh, 351 AD, just one of the three sons of Constantine that he left in power after his death was still alive himself. And that was that middle-born son of Constantius II. This last son, however, did not have all the empire under his command like his father, though. Just the eastern half. The Western Roman Empire had been usurped by army commander Magnetius, as we mentioned in that previous episode. Oh, yeah. And to Constantius's east, he had that ever-looming threat of the Sassanids. So suffice to say, he was not in the best of positions. Though his biggest challenge would come in the form of his own family, as his cousin Julian decided that it should be his time to rule Rome. And the events of this decade, however, would turn out to be the end of Constantius II, it would seem. As dun dun in, dun. Dun 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 indeed. As in 361 AD, he died. So today we're going to look into what exactly Constantius II got up to in his last full decade of power and how it all ultimately led to his demise. But before we do that, we need to do a wee bit of backtracking. We need to go back to some events we kind of glazed over in the last decade because they're pretty darn important to what happens now. You may remember in that last episode, I mentioned that Constantine's sons had all other male relatives of them killed to make sure there would not be an attempt to overthrow them. And it actually turned out they spared two of their male relatives, these being Julian and Constantius Gallus, uh, their cousins, and I'm saying cousins in uh, air quotation marks because they weren't quite cousins as we understand cousins to be. They were their father's half-brother's son and his stepson. So for all intents and purposes, they were cousins, but not as neatly cousins as they, they weren't direct blood cousins, but they're basically there. We've talked about how Romans saw family. You know, you could adopt a middle-aged man on your deathbed and they'll be your son. That Rome had a very liberal concept of family at the time. And that, that that's cool, I think. Why these brothers spared their cousins, we aren't quite sure. It's, we, we think it's due to their youth and because uh, Eusebia, who was Constantius II's wife, she supposedly took pity on the young boys and urged her husband to not kill them. And while they were not killed, they were kept under close guard of Constantius II. They were actually barred from public appearances. They were like prisoners in their own palace, as we, we see through history. Uh, perhaps Constantius II, however, 
should have executed these boys too, as one of them would play a key role in his downfall. But more on that when we get there. So I want to actually take a highlight to look into Constantius's reign. Um, because it's worthwhile seeing what kind of emperor he actually was. And he is seen as the son that fell the least far from the tree, as the phrase goes. Constantius II's policies and actions were very similar to his father's. He is very much seen as being the one who cemented his father's ideas, especially in regard to religion and Constantinople. I think it's fair to say, to use a term, that he was his father's son. Yes, he very much was his father's son, unlike the other two, who were, of course, were biologically his father's son, but these two were very... Constantius II, very much his father's son. And in regards to religion, Constantius II actually ordered the closure of all pagan temples. This was because temples were such a focal point to that religion. So without them, there was very little followers of the traditional Roman, Roman pagan religion could actually do. And this is interesting, because this is a point of policy where he very much deviates from his father. His father, mm. as Constantine the Great began patronizing in, in a very demonstrative and palpable form Christianity, mm. while he did take some actions against the former Roman pagan religion as we know it today, he also understood the political realities of it still existing and paying some political homage to it as emperor and allowing it to continue. Because while Christianity was most certainly propagating even on its own organically, and even more so after he began to patron it as emperor, he also understood that there was a, a fine portion, a numerous portion of the Roman population within their borders that were still following the old ways. Mm. And that's particularly interesting and particularly important that there was a role in this. He was never as extreme in how he directed his hand in with and regard to the former, oh, it was still going, pagan religion. In addition mm. to the fact there was a lot of Roman administration at the time. So in government, the people that he needed to carry all this stuff out, who also still observed it. So he was very careful about alienating anybody. That's one of the things that make him also a very good politician. But in this case, Constantius II goes a lot farther. Yeah, and perhaps that was his own downfall being a bit too extreme, whereas uh, Constantine knew how to be a bit more tactful with it all. Maybe Constantius II's full assault on the pagan religion was about maybe one of his more bad features. But um, this, this destruction of, well, not destruction, this closure of the pagan temples, it actually allowed Christianity to rise even further. If they couldn't worship their old gods, they all went to the new gods. And under uh, Constantius II... Only one rule, god. Yeah, only... My bad, yes, only one god. <laughs> Apologies. That's, that's the whole thing about Christianity. My bad. That's yeah, uh, all right. <laughs> under his rule, under Constantius II's rule, Constantinople grew bigger too, much like his father envisioned. Uh, he helped fund many major buildings in the city, such as granaries, bathhouses, and even a library. Uh, Constantinople, by now was equal to Rome. It was always seen as the empire's second city. You know, countries all around the world have second cities. Constantinople was Rome's second city, but now it was like equal to it. And of course, it would go on to survive much longer and become bigger than Rome too. This was huge thanks to Constantius II and what he did in the city. 
And th- 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 this expansion of Christianity and Constantinople sure would make his old man proud. That's what I feel about it. Like you said, maybe, well, maybe not, as you said, maybe he didn't want Christianity to be as a, as big as it was, but that's what his son did. But his reign was also marred by a deep paranoia. Uh, Rome was under constant known and unknown threats in all shapes and sizes. And his paranoia is believed to have created a deep sense of fear and suspicion within Rome. And we have to wonder, was Constantius II's paranoia valid? Like, even his own brothers were out to get him. So you got to wonder, like, okay, he might seem pretty paranoid, but this is probably a pretty scary time to be alive in Rome. So there's a really great quote that I like, which is, paranoia is the disease of the dictator. Mm. And of course, given the, the role, how it's evolved in terms of emperor, obviously how one manages power can fluctuate, but by design, the role was, was essentially one man rule for all intents and purposes. And for the most part, when you look at a, a system that can be as unstable and as dangerous politically as Rome had become over the last couple of centuries, my goodness, was it valid? Well, based on what he was trying to do, it would have seemed so. And, and in some respects, especially when you're talking about the two cousins he didn't kill, one of which mm. was Julian, perhaps he wasn't paranoid enough, albeit <laughs> yeah. incredibly ruthless. One of those times from where his maybe... perspective. <laughs> One of those times where it could have paid to be a bit more paranoid. But um, a defining feature of uh, Constantius II's reign were two battles. They were the Battle of Mercer Major and the Battle of Mon Seleucus. Uh, so as I mentioned, by 351 AD, uh, Magnesius, the usurping uh, soldier, was, uh, was still ruling Rome's west. And suffice it to say, Constantius II wanted the rest of his father's empire back. And at this time, he was actually already battling with the Sassanids in modern Persia. But he actually called off this attack to instead go and reclaim the west of the empire. And during this time, Magnesius was actually trying to expand his western claim of Rome eastwards. So we had Constantius II going to the west, Magnesius going to the east. We can kind of see where this is all heading off though, heading off towards each other. And they eventually met in a settlement called Mursa, which is now the city of Osiak, probably pronunciation there, in modern Croatia. So kind of in the middle between East and West, they really did meet kind of in the middle. And uh, before this battle, Constantius actually tried to negotiate a retreat back to Gaul. Uh, for Magnesius, but those talks broke down, however, and many of Magnesius's men, including one of his own commanders, actually deserted Magnesius and joined forces with Constantius II. Woo! Yeah, so a pretty good talker there. So Magnesius was down a commander and many men, but that didn't stop him and he raged into battle and the odds were not on his side. Magnesius was really the underdog in all of this. But of course, that does mean normally underdogs actually end up winning. But not in this case. Constantius rose the victor from this battle. It's actually seen as one of the bloodiest battles in Rome's history. Constantius had about 30,000 losses and two thirds oh of Magnesius's 35,000 man army were killed. So about 20,000 or so on his side. So these numbers are interesting. Let me give you guys a, a really demonstrative comparison here. Mm. On the first day of the invasion of Normandy, Operation Overlord D-Day, on the first mm. day, 
the Allies, by comparison, only lost around 10,000 men. Yeah, it's a lot of people died in this battle. Big, that, big bloody battle, quite, yeah. It was quite a blood sacrifice. And I find it interesting, though, in Constantius's case, that he wanted to see if he didn't have to roll the iron dice and fight here. And I'm, mm. I'm very much paraphrasing a quote from uh, Sun Tzu. We're not getting into the possibilities of the origins of the art of war, but one of his most <laughs> famous sayings is, the best battle to, to win is the one you don't have to fight. Mm. And so I found it interesting in this case that Constantius II was willing to negotiate a situation where you can get out of this right now. We'll let you go back and at least for a time not have to endure the bloodletting. But clearly Magnesius said, this is my time and this is my place. Yeah, and that, that, that happened. And the most ironic thing all of this is after this defeat, Magnesius actually did retreat back to Gaul, which is so ironic and kind of morbidly funny. He had the chance to retreat to Gaul without losing men. He said no to it. So loads of his men died and he still retreated back to Gaul. There's, there's something darkly funny about that, I, I, I find. But Constantius actually followed Magnesius back to Gaul. And it was in modern southeast France where the Battle of Mont Seleucus took place. And this was in 353 AD. And we don't know as many details about this battle, but it was another win for Constantius II. So Magnesius was in total defeat. He actually fled and killed himself just because of the humiliation of this defeat and losing his power, basically. This meant that Constantius II was ruler of the entire Roman Empire, much like his dad. And what Constantius II did next was actually something no other Roman ruler had ever done in the aftermath of a civil war. He publicly celebrated the win. And this is a really big deal, Paul. This is something, this one thing I found most fascinating about this whole thing. Of course, as we know very well, Rome always celebrated victory in lavish fashion, but, but never a victory against itself. It's a pretty sad thing that you have yeah. to come to war with yourself. And despite Constantius now ruling over all of Rome, to me, this shows us just how divided the empire truly was at this time. Victory over one half from the other half, it was now celebrated to the same level as victory over a completely different empire. Like Western Eastern Rome, were they pretty much complete different empires at this stage? So, you know, this is a really an interesting phenomenon here, mm. isn't it? That we're, we're celebrating the, the triumph over an internal enemy, somebody mm. that should be sharing our Roman heritage and be sharing the same greater Roman interests. And, yeah, I mean, I can only tell you the way I interpret it, which is that in this case, the idea of civil war in Rome has absolutely, you know, steamrolled on now for the better part of two centuries. Yeah, it's, it's, it's commonplace now. I think one of the things that is important to say here, of course, mm. is that those that were living through this particular moment in time did not experience those. But surely no. they may, uh, surely there has to be some information coming their way. And here, I, at least the way I interpret it, which is, it seems to me, this division between the two halves are getting bigger to the point in which they're not even necessarily identifying as the same entity. 
Yeah, and something else I found interesting while I was reading about this. Civil War had become such a mainstay, as you mentioned, it happened for the last two centuries or so. Rome, Civil War in Rome, so those people living at this point, they would have known that's just what Rome does throughout history. Rome just fights itself. It was just kind of what they knew of Rome. And it got to this point where winning a civil war was like good credentials as an emperor. Like, hey, look how good an emperor I am. I can win a civil war. It kind of sort of showed, hey, I can do this. So if the fact that Magnetius lost that civil war might have been why he killed himself because it didn't prove, you know, it was such a thing you had to do to be a good emperor to win a civil war. He couldn't. So what point did he have anyway? But it's just a, a really fascinating little slice of this history. And it shows us just how far this empire has come. And in this case, he had really no other card on the table. At least he certainly didn't believe that he had. But this has happened before. You know, we've seen this happen in our show before where mm. a usurper fails in their bid for power and then they take their own life, which mm -hmm. I think, I guess in some cases, based on their decision, is a lot better than ending up in the hands of the faction that you were seeking to overcome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is just how Rome's going. But even though Constantius II had all the empire under his belt, things weren't going too well. And it, it's been very and truly established by now that Rome could not be ruled by one single person, minus the odd, odd exception. And Constantius II was not one of those odd exceptions like his father. While Magnetius was defeated, Rome had so many other issues coming its way. Uh, from the Sassanids in the east to various Germanic tribes attacking, ruling alone was something Constantius was just not able to do. He needed a Caesar. And that Caesar would be none other than his very own cousin, the spared Constantius Gallus, as we talked about earlier. Uh, Gallus would be Caesar until 354 AD. And his reign came to an end when Constantius grew suspicious of him and had him executed. And why exactly did Constantius II become suspicious of him? What was the, what was the root of his paranoia in this case? Unfortunately, Paul, I actually couldn't find an answer to that question. It might be out in the ether somewhere, but I think it more just shows his own suspicion, his own paranoia playing up the cousin, his own cousin whose life he spared. But then maybe that's why he grew suspicious of him, because like how poorly he treated him. He kept him as a prisoner, he killed his family. So it might have just come from his sheer paranoia of the awful actions he had did that uh, Gallus would want to do the same to him. So he had him dealt with. But this, this meant the role of Caesar was now open and actually went to Gallus's younger brother, the other cousin of Julian. Those spared brothers, and especially Julian, actually built up quite the reputation in the background while all of this was going on. Uh, so making Julian his Caesar is honestly perhaps one of the dumbest things Constantius II could have done. Not that he knew it was, but as we'll see, it was an incredibly dumb move. Um, this is, of course, the same Julian whose entire family were killed by Constantius and his brothers. 
And as a young boy, this is Julian as a young boy, under Constantius II's watch, he was held under pretty much house arrest. He was taught to be a devout Christian, but it just never really clicked for Julian. Though when he was older, he was actually granted a degree of freedom. And he used this freedom to pursue a proper education in the empire's Greek east. And it was in Roman Greece he studied the pagan gods of old and fell in love with them. And you this remind you of somebody? Yeah, it reminds me of a lot of empires who've uh, fallen for the Greeks. Well, uh, no, well, was, no, 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 specifically in terms of a Roman emperor that had uh, had a real love affair with Greek culture. That's what I was going to say, uh, Hadrian. Yeah, yeah, that, that, yeah so it was Hadrian, I'm getting yeah. echoes of Hadrian, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Hadrian, I forgot. Hadrian, Trajan, I get them mixed up. I know they've had walls. Um, no, it's very strong vibes of Hadrian here. Um, and yeah, he just fell in love with Greek history, the Greek mythology, the gods of old. It connected more with him in the way Christianity just didn't. And he actually ended up becoming an incredibly smart and cultured man, this Julian. But it actually came to a crashing halt when his brother, as mentioned, was executed by Constantius II in 354 AD. And in the aftermath of this whole thing, Julian was imprisoned, though he was eventually freed. I, I couldn't find out the exact details of why they imprisoned him or why he was freed. It's just one of the things that happened. But in the following year, in 355 AD, Julian was appointed by Constantius to Rugal. So do you think Julian had a little bit of a chip on his shoulder against Constantius II? You kind of get the feeling that there might be a little grudge, basically being house arrested for most of your young years, then executing your brother, and then imprisoning you for a year? I mean, there does seem like there's some sort of lack of emotional intelligence here that might suggest to Constantius II that Julian might not be that fond of him. Like I said, Paul, this is the dumbest thing Constantius II could have done. Yeah, like just a tiny Goodness, chip on yes. his shoulder. Yeah. Uh, just a quick mention here. I also read that he wasn't uh, set up to rule Gaul. So some sources say he was set up to rule Gaul. Other sources say he took over the position of his late brother as Caesar in the east. I, I'm not sure what exactly it was, but... Whatever the case, uh, Constantius II gave Julian an enormous amount of power in his empire. And as you hinted towards Paul, Julian despised Constantius II for killing his family, locking him up multiple times, killing his brother a bit later on, and just forcing Christianity, a religion he despised, upon him. So yeah, Constantius II Such really did make someone who hated his guts and his religion, practically his equal dumb move. It's a really, this is like the dumbest thing I've heard yet in all of AD history. It's just, why it's just, did you do the, this? The lack of emotional intelligence <laughs> yeah. is just utterly baffling. It is. And Julian, despite having no prior experience, is actually a really good leader in Gaul. And he became very well liked by his men and his followers. And it's kind of easy to see where this is going. The, the, did I hear Barak Emperor on the wind somewhere? Like, uh, history just repeating itself over and over again. Yeah, these tropes are ridiculous. But that would have to wait, however, as of course Rome faced many other issues. And I just can't get over this. It's just <laughs> fascinating. Constantius yeah. II, seemingly, unwittingly, he created his own worst enemy. Just. And not only did he create his own worst enemy, he put that worst enemy in a position of power. It's just 
mind-blowing. The arrogance, the hubris. The hubris They use a Greek, Greek literature term, the, the hamartia. Exactly. It's just how. But things were happening because the Sassanids struck striked, struck, whatever I want to say. Uh, so in 357 AD, ambassadors of Shapur II came to see Constantius II. Uh, they actually came to demand land that was taken away by the Roman Empire in the previous century. And of course, Constantius II refused to give them their land back. Why would Rome want to lose more land like that? And what Don't were they he- even offering? Yeah, they weren't offering anything. They just wanted their land back. Oh, I couldn't find out of what they were offering, but of course, Constantius refused to give them this land back, though he did send an emissary over to the Sassanid Empire to try and negotiate and to avert war. We can clearly see Constantius II, while he was good at battling, he wanted to avert war at all costs. Maybe, maybe he'd been reading, reading uh, the old art of war himself, if it was available to Rome at that I don't time. think it was. But, <laughs> no, I you don't know, think the, it was, though. But. There is some ancient wisdom out there that it just does seem just mm-hmm. to permeate. Mm-hmm. And this neg- negotiations, much like with um, previously the uh, usurper Magnesius, didn't work out, and Shepard II launched a huge invasion on Roman Mesopotamia. Uh, by this time, Constantius had caught wind of this and set off to deal with the Sassanids in the empire in the empire's far east himself. And it was actually around this time that Julian over in Gaul was doing great work. He had, he had successfully defended Gaul from a handful of Germanic invasions. He was just being good. People liked him and so did his army. Talented so, ruler. Yeah, really. Just natu- One of these people just had the natural, natural skills to do it. But then the war going on over in, uh, over in Roman Mesopotamia, Constantius wanted soldiers from Gaul, Julian soldiers in Gaul, to leave Gaul and help him out in the east. And of course, they weren't happy about it. They were enjoying them, their, their lives in Gaul. They didn't want to be sent all the way across the empire to fight a war of the Sassanids. So not only did they not go help Constantius, they actually turned on him. And as I hinted towards, they declared Julian their emperor. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, who the thought, eh? And while... So Constantius II actually did catch wind of what his cousin had done and being declared emperor. He wasn't able to do anything about it because he was too busy dealing with the Sassanids over in the east. But by 361 AD, however, the Sassanid threat had been reduced, meaning Constantius could finally go westward and deal with his usurping cousin, who by now had been emperor for a good few years or so, at least in the western part of the empire. Uh, he and his men started to travel back to Gaul, and this was set to be a clash of a lifetime, cousin versus cousin. Except Constantius II got sick on the journey there, and he knew he wasn't going to make it back to face it off with his cousin. So, like his father before him, he accepted his fate and actually got baptised on his deathbed. Like I said, this really was his father's son. And just before death, what's interesting is that Constantius II actually came to peace with his cousin and he declared Julian his rightful successor. And Constantius II eventually died of a fever on the 3rd of November, 361 AD. And of course, his death was also the death of Constantine's legacy. Those three sons left behind to fulfill his father's legacy just a couple of decades ago. All three of them had died himself and left just his nephew to rule the dynasty now. And 
won't go into it too much here because I'm going to talk about it next time. It's really interesting stuff. Julian's reign actually only turned turned out to be a few more years after this. It was a reign of actually immense interest. But as I said, that's something we cover in the next episode. But that's it. That's the actual blood children of Constantine gone. That that um, probably the last great empire emperor of Rome, Western Rome, Eastern Rome, whatever you want to call it. His legacy gone, and we're we're in the dregs now, Paul. I feel steadily marching to a huge geopolitical crisis that shaped Europe to follow, to be sure. And I think it's really interesting in the case of Constantius II, mm. in that you know, being his father's son, he also died of natural causes. He didn't kill himself. Mm. He wasn't executed. He wasn't murdered. He managed to overcome his usurper short of natural death but i find it so interesting so if you were a previous listener of ad history you will know that something that was very common this has certainly happened with constantine the great as much as he patronized christianity once he had the entire empire within his domain he waited until he was essentially on his deathbed to actually convert and mm. ultimately just as a brief refresher that's because there's the shortest amount of time to make sure that, you know, you don't sin or run afoul of the constructs of Christianity. So it's, a, it's an interesting technicality in a way. He's not unique in this respect, because obviously the same thing happened with his dad. But as, as the story went on, as the historical narrative moved forward, the fact that he had a natural death, at least for him, is extraordinary. And actually something mm. of an accomplishment, to be sure. That, and then to decide, okay, Julian, I'm going to make peace with you, and you can mm. succeed me. We haven't he seen really, a hell of a lot of that. No, he really was the closest to his father. He even died in a similar manner to his father. I just think, I just think that's really interesting. Like He really was the one closest to what his father had envisioned. Yeah, he was his father's yeah. son. And yeah, he was his father's son. But we're beginning to see how this empire is going to split. And when yeah. it faces some of its more unexpected, but certainly upcoming uh, fatal existential mm -hmm. threats, certainly in the West, we're beginning to understand on, on a deeper and more detailed level of exactly how this came forward. Because the, 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 there's that shortened, sanitized narrative about how it all went down. But when you begin looking at the threads, when you begin looking mm. at the finer details, you begin to really appreciate how this, one of the greatest ancient superpowers, on par with any other, eventually met its fate. And it's a, such a compelling story. Sometimes, mm. you know, it, it can kind of be the never-ending sacrifice in some ways, if, you want, if I were to describe it in, in a way. But... This is a very unique ending that I think anybody who is unfamiliar with it would never have expected. And I think that is incredible. I think it's absolutely incredible too, Paul. It's been so thrilling reading it. It's kind of sad starting to say goodbye to Rome, but all things must come to an end. But it's not like the actual land of Rome or city of Rome or it's Constantinople is going anywhere. We're still going to have history going on there. It's just, just, just different kind of history. That's the fun thing with with history in this podcast, it's always changing. There's always going to be new things coming and going. And 
a lot has come and a lot's about to go. And I think it, I think a rather fitting note to mm. leave this on. In the modern day, in the 21st century, in our HD world, as you and I like to call it, mm. the world around us changes so rapidly over mm. even a decade, even a year. Mm. And for so long in human history, before we, you know, we really kind of hit the gas, and, and that's obviously not universal. That really kind of depends where in the mm. world you are. If you're looking at human advancement, it's, just, it's not just a a linear point up, depending on where you are, it's kind of like this, 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 mm. and then you can get set back and then you can forget things that you did know <laughs> and, and, and all these things. For most of human history, everything that was going around people was, were, were changes that they could not even really notice. But this is one of the few and really interesting and unique times, and it has been for a lot of our show to be sure, mm. where if you're a Roman, wherever you may be in the empire, obviously it would vary. Unlike so much of human history, you're really seeing your world change in a highly perceptive, demonstrative, mm. and palpable way. And that's why I'm so glad that you chose to bring this thread and share with it and explore it with us today. But us here, you there, and we'll be back right afterward from one, Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Well, that does it for us today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally primarily on Instagram at NameExplainYT. But you can also find me on Twitter at NameExplainYT and of course on YouTube search NameExplain. What about you, Paul? In addition to my usual work at TGNR at TGNReview.com, you can find me at my Twitter handle at PKD in History, as well as my reader-submitted World War II Q&A column, The World War II Brain Bucket, where I answer all World War II-related questions, which, if you are on YouTube, we will have a link down in the description. That's all today for myself. Goodbye, thank you, and take care. Yes, thank you all so much. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC, as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash ADHistoryPodcast and Instagram as AD History Podcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching AD History Podcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. For Paul and Patrick, Thank you for listening to the AD History. We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.